שלום לכם. מבצע עלות השחר החזיר לישראל את היוזמה, החזיר את ההרתעה הישראלית. כל המטרות הושגו. כל הצמרת הצבאית של הג'יהאד האסלאמי בעזה סוכלה תוך שלושה ימים. עוצמתו ותחכומו של צה"ל היכו את האויב מכה קשה. ובתיאום נכון והדוק בין הדרג המדיני למבצעי, השגנו שלושה יעדים במבצע עלות השחר. And this is Election Overdose, where we have only 82 days left until the elections. It's all going so fast, and so we're busily checking the boxes, checking off our checklist to make sure we've got everything we need for this election season. Do we have a war? Check. Do we have primary elections? Check. Yes, we're going to talk about that terminology when we get into the news of the week. But what do you think, Anshul? Is there anything else we need in our toolbox for a campaign in Israel? No, I think we need to take a vacation. <laughs> we may never have a vacation if there's never a government. We'll just, we're just going to keep going into more and more election cycles. That's Anshul Pfeffer. I'm Dalia Shenlin here in Haaretz Studios in Tel Aviv. And we've been poring over the lists of candidates all week to find out who the people have chosen as their candidates to be the legislators in the next Knesset. Well, at least about 100,000 of the over 6 million voters in Israel who vote in primary elections. Therefore, we're going to be devoting this episode mainly to understanding both the primary system and the results, the news of the week that's relevant to the elections, polls, parties, and more. Let's start with the news updates. We had a very dramatic thing happen this week, or I should say this past weekend, but it's hard to even name that thing. It's true that I called it a war to introduce the topic because I think in the minds of many Israelis who are neither journalists nor political scientists, they just need an easy way to discuss it and refer to it and compartmentalize it in their minds. We want to know how they will compartmentalize it in the campaign period and where they will take this problem when it comes time to vote. Will they take it out of the compartment when they go to the ballot box, or will they just forget all about it? Anshul, what do you think, and how do you think Israelis are conceiving of what happened between Israel and the Islamic Jihad over last weekend? I must say that if journalists or political scientists call a three-day exchange of, uh, of rockets and airstrikes a war, then it, it mainly speaks to their lack of, uh, of an imagination. Um, Israel's been at war with the Palestinians for over 100 years, and the situation in Gaza depends how you, where you want to start it has been going on at least for 15 years since the siege. So the, the, the Hamas takeover, which precipitated the siege, <coughs> uh, has, uh, has been going on. So this is certainly for Israelis just yet another of those episodes in which those living in the South have to scurry for shelter. And there's talk of perhaps something bigger happening in Gaza. And this time it, it was over very quickly and... Uh, it's a good question. Will, will this in any way in 80 odd days when the election is held still feature in people's minds? I don't think I don't think it will. But it is part of this much broader accumulation of, of Lapid prime ministerialist. If Lapid is showing that he is a, a competent prime minister, someone who isn't just by coincidence in that office in Jerusalem, but he is actually handling affairs, then this this serves to bolster his image and make him a more legitimate figure, both as a party leader and as a, and as a potential prime minister after the election. And I think on that count, he did very well in this uh, very short campaign. 
And it seems that the polls show that people think he did do a good job on this particular issue, and they also basically supported the operation. My point about what to call it is that I don't. I think journalists and political scientists are much more cautious and careful to use precisely the right word, whether it's escalation or operation. I'm just thinking, you know, does the public see it in one of those ways, or do the, does the public say what you just said? Well, this is part of an ongoing war. I also think that the public in different places probably sees it in different ways. In the South, I bet it felt a lot more like you know, the, the more extreme, the more severe version of the terminology. Uh, having said that, what we find over time in election campaigns is that there's very little distinction, interestingly, uh, in terms of voter breakdown and party choice based on where people live. The real determinants of how people vote are things like their personal ideology, their level of religiosity, um, and their historic voting. But when somebody lives in the South, it's no guarantee even though that person has been living under much more intense you know, rocket fire and the kinds of things that happen during these escalations, it's no guarantee they're going to be more left-wing or right-wing. It really depends on you know, which particular kind of community they're from, but more than anything else, their demographic. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm amused by the fact that you chose to characterize journalists as being cautious, but that's another, another thing. I always try to see the best in people. Well, as, it, as far as it goes with the voting patterns of people living in the South, and we saw this throughout the 12 years of Netanyahu's prime minister. The Gaza operations came and went, didn't solve anything. Netanyahu didn't try to solve anything. His government was very overcautious in actually trying to, to, to find some kind of solution for Gaza. And I don't think it affected the voting patterns. If we look at the voting patterns in places which are basically adjacent to each other, the kibbutzim around the Gaza border and a place like Sderot, which is also on, on, on Gaza's border, you'll see the voting patterns there are very different. Likudniks stayed Likudniks, despite what I think was a shocking uh, incompetence by, of the Likud government in, in handling the, the Gaza issue. And the kibbutzim didn't vote Likud before. They weren't going to, go, weren't going to vote Likud anyway. I think Netanyahu knew that, he, that, that this really wasn't something that would, uh, would feature in elections. And I mean, you analyze these things much in a much deeper fashion than I do. But have you ever seen any major change in voting patterns of communities living around Gaza? Not really for that reason. I think it raises one of those interesting questions about people looking at the same real-world events and coming to very different conclusions. In other words, as you point out, people living in the kibbutzim that are close to Gaza and people living in places like Sterot or Fakim are basically suffering through the same situation, which is really very different from everywhere else in the country. We should remind people that living in Tel Aviv even, and we did have some salvos of rockets in Tel Aviv or in Jerusalem or further north, many people are saying this week, you know, they didn't really feel the war, whereas in the South, or the escalation, in the South it's unavoidable. And yet they come to different conclusions. People who vote towards the left say the conclusion is that we need to reach an overall political resolution, get back to negotiations, even though hardly any parties are actually talking about that. And people on the right say, we need to take a tougher line. And that's their reaction to the very same events. And that, I think, is, you know, an interesting um, tribute to how people's ideological leanings really guide the filter through which they see these events. I think what was interesting from the political side is, is the optics of how the three men who are both are all running to be the next prime minister tried to get themselves into the frame. So Lapid was in the frame as prime minister at the end of the day, he has ultimate responsibility for everything that's been happening. You had Benny Gantz at the one, on the one hand trying to show that he's working harmoniously together with, with Lapid, and we know 
that these two gentlemen who in the who in the past were political partners haven't had the best of relationships and Gantz is trying to show that he is actually the the, the, the better candidate uh, for prime minister, the one who can build a coalition after the after the election. So we had Gantz on the one hand trying to show that he's working harmoniously with Lapid. On the other hand, we had this, I, I thought, outrageous uh, clip, video clip that his office put out of the moment in which Gantz was conferring with the generals when they decided to take out the second of the senior Palestinian Islamic Jihad commanders, um, uh, Khalid Mansour. And that to me was like, it's not, it's not done. This what this wasn't done in the past. I mean, we've had you know, the Americans do it. Obama put out this this thing of how he was sitting in in the Situation Room under the White House for for, the, uh, for Bin Laden's uh, assassination. I don't remember ever having an Israeli politician put out this footage of how and where he was when when they decided on uh, on killing some some terror chieftain. I think in a way it was a very Netanyahu kind of gimmick. It's the kind of thing Netanyahu is, was was want to do um, over the course of his term. He would make these kind of publicity stunts. Netanyahu never did that. This was something really crass by Benny No, Gale. but it's his style. It... You can say Netanyahu's style, and I'm, and I'm no fan, but the fact is, Bibi never did this, Benny Gantz did this, and it was very crass. On the other hand, you had Netanyahu actually trying to show that for the first time since losing the job of prime minister, agreeing to go and meet with the serve, with the current prime minister and get the, the, the briefing that the leader opposition is supposed to get for every month in Israel. And Netanyahu pointedly did not go to Naftali Bennett and hasn't gone to, to Lapid until now to get that briefing. He finally went and he made a big show of doing it. So for the first time, he in a way acknowledged the fact that there is a prime minister who is not him. He tried to do it in a way where I came and I gave my advice to the prime minister. But it was very clear this wasn't a great moment for Netanyahu. He had to do it because it would have looked even worse if at a time of national crisis, he wasn't going as leader opposition and conferring with the prime minister. So I think all in all, the optics work very well for Lapid here. How much of this will, will remain uh, in the public's consciousness? I think it will remain in the subconsciousness, but 80 day, days from now, we'll probably be talking about something else. Probably. And I will just point out, because we are always attuned to what the polling says with all of the caveats, that the polls that have been taken you know, in terms of party breakdown, still they're showing small shifts, but no trend. And so I, I'm sorry to keep repeating myself, but we keep seeing over time that there was maybe one poll before the escalation that showed Likud possibly getting 62, even without Ayelet Shaked's uh, Spirit of Zionism party. But after the war, you know, there were a couple of polls showing that Likud's block, the Netanyahu loyalist block of parties was only getting 59. But it's none of this is a trend. This is all within a very, very tight range of motion. And we're still not seeing anything that fully breaks out of that. I mean, there, there was a feeling, perhaps, in, in in the last couple of polls, which which were taken after the operation, that perhaps that momentum that you spoke of, and it's not much of a momentum because you're right, it only extends to sixty one, sixty two. Perhaps has been slightly uh, the momentum has has ended, and 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 they could have back to where they were a few weeks ago, down at fifty nine, sixty. But you know, it's much too early to say that. So early to say, and of course, all of those shifts anywhere between 59 seats, 60 seats and 61 or even 62 seats, unless it's a trend. We're talking about such small numbers of poll respondents making those choices that it's very hard to say anything about them. 
So what else happened this week? We had a very busy week in terms of primaries, and that is going to be the main topic of our show today. But before we get into which parties, what the results were, let's talk about system of primaries in general in Israel. Which parties have them? Which parties don't? What about the others? How old are they? First of all, we should clarify that the two parties that held primaries this week were the Labor Party and Likud. And they were choosing not their leaders, which were already chosen, but the list of candidates to be legislators. We have two other parties that are going to have primaries. That's merits and religious Zionism. What does that say about our political system? Four parties have primaries for the list of candidates. All the rest, anywhere between 20 and 40 parties who might be running, don't. Angel, do you think that's democratic, undemocratic? What does it say about Israeli politics? Well, first of all, we have to remember that even the primaries that we do have aren't like the primaries in the United States, where basically anybody who identifies as uh, someone who supports one of the main parties can go and vote here. You have to be a fully registered party member and pay membership dues and so on. And you can be kicked out from, from your membership for various reasons. So you actually have to be registered as a member of a party, not just to affiliate with a party in order to, uh, to vote. So these aren't open primaries. They're closed party primaries. They're still much bigger, uh, much bigger selectorate than the other parties have. So we always talk about, yeah, Lapid in this context is someone who rules his party with an iron fist, but he's not the only one. Most of the parties' lists are uh, are appointed by a leader. And there really is no good answer which is the better system, because, yes, you have democracy within a certain limit of party membership in Likud and Labour and Meretz, where everybody who is a member can vote, and that's... That seems to be a good thing, but it also comes along with a very heavy dose of at least potential corruption because all these candidates need to run a campaign. Campaigns are expensive. They need to hire pollsters like you who who have to be paid and various other gimmicks. And I can tell you pollsters like me have a much harder time doing polling for primary campaigns because it's much harder to think about how to draw and build a sample from within party members because the membership changes. You don't necessarily know exactly what the universe looks like. It's hard. To, it's a very limited group of people. So anybody doing polling in primaries knows that this is a problem because it's so limited. It's very hard to get an accurate reading. And because of that fact that you mentioned, the fact that it's a party membership, so it's a limited number of people, then there's a lot of ways that this can be manipulated. You have people who sign up their families and friends and their work colleagues who have entire companies in the case of Israel, aerospace industry and, and one of the biggest corporations in Israel where thousands of people sign up to be Likud members, for example. And then the boss, the, whoever's the, the, the guy who, who signed them up and in some cases illegally pays their membership dues for them, control their votes. So you have people controlling these blocks of votes and therefore they have a lot of political power behind the scenes yet another opening for, for, for quite significant corruption. So the primary system is far from perfect. And there is an argument to be, to be had for, the, for a party which has a leader or a small committee within it saying, this is the list of candidates we want to present to the voters. Here it is. The voters can decide whether, whether or not they, they like it. I'm, I still like the fact that, that they could and Labour have this this period in which people have to go around the country and meet members and t talk about themselves and talk about their plans. I was I went to a few uh, of these meetings uh, in, in in proper English we call them parlor meetings. The, chug, the Hebrew chugbayit, 
I think works better though. And I happen to know that which some of the ones that you went to, and I think you struck gold with one of them, and that's a teaser. We're going to talk about the results and find out why you chose just the right parlor meeting to go to. Well, just because it was around the corner from my house, really. But um, <laughs> the fact is, is that there is something good about Knesset members, potential Knesset members, having to go around the country and meet members and talk about their concerns whether it's the best system, especially in the way it works in Israel, where, where it's not an open primaries and where various party bosses control blocks of votes, it's a good question. It happens in other countries as well. And even in places where they do have open primaries, like the United States, you do have blocks of voters, even close to us in a way you have in New York, how some rabbis can, can bring big blocks of Hasidic votes to, to various candidates in the mayoral or the state elections. And that changes everything. I see you're laughing there. I mean, I think the, one of the interesting things is that uh, the actual individuals on the list, the candidates who are running in those primaries, will often try to get people to register for the party as if they were registering for that person. It's this. I find it a kind of bizarre system that, you know, anybody I know in any of the parties that I'm close to will actually reach out and call me. And I had a number of those calls saying, please register for the party because it will be as if you registered within my camp of that candidate. And then they assume that if you register because that person convinced you to, then that you're, you're going to vote for that person. It's a little odd in my opinion. But the other interesting thing, I think, is as you point out, people say, that's one way of putting it, that your Lapid runs, with, runs his party with an iron fist and there's no open primaries. I would correct that and say, Really, the people who say that are Likud, top figures within Likud. They are the ones who are constantly repeating that refrain. And I'm not sure how much the voters really agree with them. Because I think for the reasons that you point out, I have a perception. It's true that I have not polled on this. So I'm going to do the rare thing of actually saying something that I have not polled on about Israeli society. I get the sense that the voters are kind of split about this issue as well. And they don't have an incredibly strong feeling uh, that they that they really want their parties to have you know, these primaries closed or open, but mostly closed, or whether it's kind of okay that a party like Yair Lapid's, which apparently is doing quite well, right, uh, has been by all accounts a stunning success since it was established about 10 years ago. Nobody seems to be punishing it for not having primaries. So I guess the question is, how much are Israelis who are not voting in one of the only four parties that hold primaries paying attention? What do you think? Well, I think it's a great question. And, um, there's, we have to know the fact that all these parties we're talking about didn't in the past hold primaries. This is a new, relatively new phenomenon, which we'll talk about when we get to our party annual section at the end, when we'll kind of delve into the history of Israeli primaries for a few minutes. The truth is that, that, that both parties, we're talking now about Yeshatid and, and Likud, which have opposite systems, are very proud of their systems. And you, you talk to Likud next and you go to their events and they're hugely proud of the fact that they have primaries. And I have to say, I don't, I, you know, I don't really call it as a surprise to our lead, to our listeners, but um, I enjoy going to Likud events because they're very warm and friendly, and people really feel that, that they're at a social event. It is, it is almost like a family event going to a, to, to one of these Likud meetings. On the other hand, Yeshatid are very proud of the fact that they have a party which has been working well for ten years. It's it's a very, very rare example of an Israeli center party which has survived this long. It survived because the Lapid has run the show with a small group of advisors, and they, they know what they're doing. They plan their candidates' list well. 
They know what they're looking for. They have good pulses, good focus groups. They know exactly what, what kind of picture to put together of, uh, of a rainbow list. And they're proud of it as well. I would say we can call it the trade-off between the tight ship which is the Ir Lapid version of this, and what the Likud people love to talk about as the Chagigat Demokratia, the celebration of democracy. So these are the two different polls. Now, let's move on to our main section about the results of the primaries this week. So, which was more exciting, the Labour primary or the Likud primary? Never mind that the Likud is the biggest party in the country and Labour is projected to have between five and seven seats in the surveys at present. But which one was more interesting in terms of the results? Before the results, really one thing to be said, the process was much more exciting than Likud. It well, was it was a circus. circus. I mean, they brought clowns and, that, and, was, and Netanyahu played, played football. But even before that, there was a whole, there was all these sagas of, of, of petitions to the court blocking that candidate and this candidate. And, well, they were criminals. And who would be voting for the district candidates? Would it be the district? Would it be the central committee? There's a lot of skullduggery going on, a lot of color, a lot of fun for, for journalists reporting on that. Whereas Labour was very, very... Uh, they were on the up and up. They didn't have any scandals. They didn't have any petty criminals. I mean, is that a bad thing? I don't know. Politics is something which is red in, red in, tooth, in the tooth. You know, you need, you need this excitement. They could, it was all very sanitized Labour. It was, you know, everything, every, the voting was, was done by, uh, online. It was all very quick and over, and we had the results. We don't have the final liquid results yet. But on the other hand, the flip side is that the results in Labour were much more exciting than the Likud results because we had also new threat. I mean, they're not new because they were in the Knesset, but the people who, who won the top spots are first-time Knesset members. Some of them are barely known to the public outside Labour's membership. Total change of the face of Labour Let's talk about the losers first in Labour. The big losers of the night, of Tuesday night, Labour were Omar Balev, uh, the uh, police or internal security minister who went down, who dropped the ninth spot, basically Labour's most prominent minister, and Labour's other minister, who a national celebrity for many years, Nachman Shai, the former IDF spokesman from, from the Gulf War that everyone will remember, anyone who was alive then at least remembers. Yes, exactly. That's an age factor. Anybody who was old enough to remember the Gulf War, or the first Gulf War, might remember him, but younger people not. But still, Nachman Shai, a national, a national celebrity, dropped down to the, if I'm not mistaken, the 17th spot on the list. Whereas to the top rows, Naimala Zimi, a 36-year-old first-time Knesset member, council member in, uh, of Haifa City, someone who's really not known until very recently beyond labor circles. She's now number two after Mirav Michaeli. Uh, exciting, I think exciting. And yes, I, I went to see her, uh, her parlor meeting a few and weeks And that's ago, how you hit the jackpot. Well, so I think, I think now, I think now Malazimi gave a very, uh, very passionate account, both of her, not of her, her labor career, which goes back to when she was a, a child and her, and her dad was the branch chairman in Migdal Emek. Migdal Emek, a small town in the north, not a Likud voting town, but as she told it, the Labour branch there was very active and she remembers the days of Oslo and when they were campaigning for Rabin and so on. And she gave a great story of how she remembers Labour being a party which not only ruled Israel, but also influenced and did, you know, did real things and changed Changed the parameters of our of our lives in many ways, and she is not just nostalgic for those days when Labour was the party of power. She also has 
I think, a very compelling social democratic policies and platform. The interesting thing was that she did not mention one name the entire time she was talking at that parliament meeting. She didn't mention the name of Mirab Michaeli. And we know from within the party that Mirab Michaeli was not exactly endorsing Nama Lazimi's campaign. There wasn't any open warfare or tension between them, but Mirab Michaeli had the party, the candidates she wanted to do well, Nama Lazimi was not on that list. At the same goes to number two, the next guy on the list, Giyad Kariv. We'd have to remember, remind listeners he's a reform rabbi, as if anybody has forgotten that, but also not a very prominent figure. Wait, wait, that, that, is, that is an important thing in Israeli life because he's one of the few very prominent people in Knesset who's actually making the case for expanding you know, awareness and rights for Jewish pluralism, as we call it. And that is you know, such a controversial issue in Israeli life in general and in the Knesset um, and in the, in the ultra-Orthodox parties, which I remind people that if there is to be a coalition that is not led by Netanyahu, but one of the center or center, like let's say a centrist party like Yair Lapid with the center-right parties who are against Netanyahu and possibly even the center-left parties, there's no way to do that unless they either go once again with Ram or with the joint list, which is close to negative unlikely, um, or if they're able to bring in the Haredi parties. And so this is a big issue. It's not just like a marginal thing that Gilad Kariv is a reform rabbi. Which also makes Labour a rather awkward coalition partner in a future coalition, which will include the, the, the Haredi parties. And that's another reason why Mirab Mikhali may not have wanted Gilad Kariv to get such a high spot in the list. And there's an interesting contrast here. Three weeks ago, Rav Michaeli was re-elected with 82% of the vote. True, that wasn't a strong challenger against him, but still, Labour re-elected her overwhelmingly as the new leader. And then Labour, three weeks later, comes along and elects a list which the top two people on the list are not candidates that Michaeli wanted very much. The next uh, person on the candidate, Efrat Wright, and also a first-time Knesset member, Tel Aviv lawyer, former star of of the children's TV channel. She was someone that Mirab Micheli wanted. She's the kind of person Mirab Micheli gets along well with. Tel Aviv media, upper middle class. It's exactly the type of, of candidate Mirab Micheli likes. So there's an interesting dissonance going here within the party. On the one hand, they still want Mirab Micheli to lead the party. On the other hand, the candidate list, the party is a lot more independent-minded. Okay, I want to point out a couple of things that I think is interesting about the Labour primary. First of all, they had 57% turnout, which is a major rise from last time, and they're very excited about that. They think that proves that there's a lot of excitement. Uh, the list of people who are elected in the top 10 are mostly young, like a new generation. As you point out, the older generation got pushed back. So that seems that they're, it makes it seem like their voters, whether they're old or young themselves, are interested in putting new, fresh faces in there. I think that what's interesting about Nama Lazimi is that she checks so many boxes that are important right now. She comes, as you point out, from the periphery of the country, which is a big divide in Israel, the central region versus the more marginalized parts of the country. She's Mizrahi. She is, has been active in LGBT causes, and she's very big on social and economic themes in general. She had a very long uh, post, which was a Facebook post, but she gave a lot of economic analysis about her plan for expanding investments in social infrastructure and how it's okay to expand the, the, the debt to GDP ratio. Anyway, it was very interesting. She really thinks about that stuff. And yet she also has been an activist in peace now. And so she's kind of got both those major issues covered. That's interesting. I also think it's important that the, to, to note that the list is uh, half and half men and women. This is a policy, uh, the zipper policy that labor has taken on. I think that there are several people who have a Mizrahi background, as well as uh, Ibtisam Arana, who is still in the top 10. She's uh, an Arab woman on the list. Uh, Emily Mwati has a Tunisian background. 
Yeah, yeah. Fink is somebody who is religious and comes out of uh, a movement called Darkenu, which is then focused on both social activism and also kind of generally supporting a two-state solution. So these are people who have diverse areas of interest, diverse demographic backgrounds, and they do represent demographic backgrounds that break out of some of the typical and really burdensome legacy of labor. Um, and so I think that there's interesting stuff to work with. I don't. I think ultimately, even if Meirav Michaeli is not thrilled about any one or it wasn't her first choice, and we should remember that Naama Lazimi came out of Shelley Chemovich's background. She was her parliamentary assistant. I think that I, I have a hard time believing that Michaeli would be in any way unhappy about such a fresh-looking list. One, I think, interesting feature of this election is you mentioned the zipper system, whereby man, woman, man, woman, man, woman. Uh, and that was obviously created to in, uh, to improve gender balance and have more women on the list. A very strange thing happened with that system this time. Did you notice what that was? No, tell me. So it has to be man, woman. That's the rule. The list has to be 50-50. This time, more female candidates did better. So it actually ended up pushing Ram Sheffer, who is a man, up the list because there needed to be 50-50% and there were too many women. So I'll start with my observations about the Likud primary, which I think is very interesting. First of all, they also had high and enthusiastic turnout, about 58%. The final results are still coming in, but it is unmistakable when you look at the top 10 or even 15 that other than the spots that are specifically reserved, uh, there are almost no women at the top there. There's Miri Regev in place number nine, but it is a long list of men. And... Not too many of them are a surprise, but some of them do represent the younger face of the Likud, and I think it's interesting to go through them. I mean, one of the more important ones, of course, is actually the one who came in first place, who is number two in the party after Netanyahu, but number one, and that's Yariv Levin. He has been a loyalist for Netanyahu for years. I think he's an interesting figure. That we used to think of him as a kind of a team with Zev Elkin, but Zev Elkin uh, left the party and went into New Hope. And Yariv Levine seems to have signed on to everything Netanyahu stands for. He just supports everything he does, including uh, taking digs at the judiciary. And he is number one in the party right now. Uh, the other ones are Eli Cohen, who was minister of the economy. I actually think that he doesn't have much of a standout personality, although I'm sure he has his communities. Yoav Gallant, a security man who has been a minister in previous governments. Uh, David Amsalem, who is a very controversial figure, uh, for reasons we can talk about. And Amir Ohana, you know, it was kind of the flagship of the Likud, proving that they are also proud to have an LGBT, the first LGBT representative and first minister uh, from the Likud in government. Uh, so these are some of the people on the list. Of course, there's Nir Barkat, who has been, who was for a long time mayor of Jerusalem. He, I, th I think in a way, has been waiting for a long time, for a higher spot on Likud. I think he certainly has designs and one day leading Likud. Um, and Miri Regev, who, of course, is in the camp of what some of us think of as the shouters. She's the classic populist. She really holds down that position of just being the person to always say the most provocative thing, especially when she was Minister of Culture. But in every other position, she finds herself. And so I think that these are mostly well-known faces. Anshul, what do you make of this top 10, 15 of course, we have to go down to the top first 35 for Likud because any of them might actually get in. Well, when we're talking about the top seven or eight or ten people on the list, it's a very stale male gray list. It's people who really don't inspire any type of, exception perhaps of Miri Regev, don't inspire any type of passion for or against. I can't say that I feel very much about it. I mean, Dudiam Salem is, a, is a, perhaps a colorful figure 
in some ways, but he's not someone who is really presenting any kind of interesting message for Likud. These are people who were voted democratically by a large uh, group of, of, of party members, no question about that, but they voted for one reason only, and that's the, the level of their loyalty to Likud. You know, the second and third people on the list who you mentioned, Elikor and Yov Gallant, just a few years ago, were members of Kulau. They're not members of Likud. They're the people who came into politics in a party which no longer exists, which was created to be the new Likud, challenging Netanyahu, and then they underwent a conversion, joined Likud, left Kulau, joined Likud, and have become the most pro-Bibi of, uh, of, of Likudniks possible. So this all, that's all that matters. It doesn't matter if six or seven years ago you weren't even a Likudnik. You could, as long as you prove to everyone that you're pro. Maybe number seven on the list, or six, Yov Kish was two years ago the campaign manager for Gidon Sar's ill-fated challenge within Likud. And then the moment Sar lost, he didn't join Sar's new party. He stayed within Likud and and um, and fought uh, to, to prove that him, himself the biggest Bibi loyalist of all. And, these, and, and they've been rewarded in these top spots. But there's in this like gray bunch of minions of Bibi, there really is nothing very exciting to say. What is interesting is that almost anybody who you would have put on a potential list of challenges one, in the near or distant future one day, Tuna Tanyal, they've all either dropped out or gone or dropped down the list. Nir Bakat is the cha- is the potential challenger. What a shock that all of Bibi's potential challengers are not doing very well. They've done very bad. Mirabel Katz, who's been running a very expensive, self-funded campaign to be the next Likud leader, has only got the eighth spot, which is, I think, a huge disappointment for him. Perhaps the strongest of potential challengers, at least who was seen the strongest, Israel Katz is down at 12th or 13th. I saw one result putting already at 15th spot. Sakhya Nebi wasn't a challenger, but was seen as sort of as a stand-in, as someone who could kind of be a caretaker different and now had to leave, has totally dropped out of the list. Yuli Edelstein, the only actual challenger for a few months, though he, he'd cancelled his, his leadership bid over a month ago, has dropped down to 27 or 28 on the list. I mean, all these people would have been because leadership cadre have almost evaporated. Okay, we should just remember that Yuli Edelstein was at the top of the list starting from the 2020 elections. So, you know, he was in a very high position and dropped all the way down. The other thing I find interesting is that Israel Katz has really, I don't know how expensive his campaign is, but has been, but he has been putting himself out everywhere. He has been such a presence in the media. You would think, sometimes I, you know, I just turn on the radio or TV and all I hear is Israel Katz. It's like he's been really making an effort to stay prominent in the public mind and yet he didn't do very well. I think the final question always comes down to the following. Is this good or bad for Bibi? Well, it means that Bibi has to work very hard now in the next uh, two and a half months of this campaign because Likud, to get that elusive 61 majority, needs to eke out its existing uh, support in, in the Israeli public because as as we've said here many times, there's not going to be any major move between the blocks. To get that majority, Netanyahu needs to, especially in 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 relation to in comparison to the previous election where many Likudnikim stayed at home, he, he needs to boost Likud turnout this time. And it, it's all going to be on him. He hasn't won here a list of successful, uh, charismatic, uh, colourful and interesting rabble-rousers who can go to those liquid strongholders and get those traditional liquid voters out 
on election day. It's all down to him now. Some would argue that's always been the case. And this is the kind of list that, that confirms Netanyahu and therefore there's no there's no reason to expect them to do the to do the heavy lifting for him. But he no, he hasn't got a star here who he can send in his place around the country to get to get out the vote. This is this is when Netanyahu has sort of lost out here. Also, it has to be said because of people like Dudi and Salim on, uh, in top spots, all these people who've said to throw out the left wingers, put them in prison, throw bleach on the state uh, attorney's office and so on. I think that was Galit Distal of Barian, who is currently at spot number 20. She's been a regular, uh, really a rabble rouser against the all arms of the judiciary and law enforcement in Israel. He hasn't got any reassuring face for the soft right. Ezra Stein, who was perhaps the main soft right, at least at a time seen as the soft right candidate on the list, has dropped down. Tachia Negbi is, is out of the list. Yuval Steinitz, who was sort of the, the kind of least controversial senior liquid figure, has left politics. He hasn't got someone to kind of make those reassuring voices to bring back some of the soft right wing voters who went to Gideon Sarah and now will be voting for Gideon Sarah and, uh, and Benny Gantz's joint uh, list. And that's something that, that he'll be lacking. Yeah, I think that uh, Nir Barkat tries to be that person, but somehow or other, he doesn't ever seem to really generate a groundswell. And then with people like Shlomo Kari, even though he's much lower on the list, he's currently uh, slated to win position number 11, where Nir Barkat is at number 8. But still, somehow or other, those people are much louder, more influential, and much more extreme. The only other person I would keep my eye on is Boaz Bismuth, who is currently somewhere near the 27th part of, uh, uh, slot on the list. And he was, for a long time, the chief editor of Israel Hayom, which was, of course, Netanyahu's kind of mouthpiece paper funded by Sheldon Adelson, top-circulating free Israeli newspaper. He is also a prominent television uh, panelist and personality who's always there upholding exactly the message that Bibi is trying to get across. And sometimes I find that it almost doesn't matter how low down you are on the list as long as you're within the realistic spots, and 27 is still realistic for Likud. Sometimes it's really a matter of how loud you shout and how prominent you are. So I think he could also be an influential force, an influential voice on the campaign. Uh, what do you think? Well, Baz will certainly be used as one of the campaign's presenters because he's a well-known face and he's an accomplished uh, media performer. But I don't think he's going to have that much of a of an influence because he's very much a niche taste of a certain type of Likunik who likes watching him. I don't think he'll be able to bring additional votes in him. Mean, it really is. It really all falls down to Netanyahu now to bring out the votes. But this is what he does. He doesn't really rely on other candidates. That's what he loves. Well, that's it for the primary system for now. But we will have two more primaries coming up, merits and religious Zionism. And we'll be talking about those results as well. And now we move on to our favorite time of the day. What time is it? It's party time. So this week, since we're talking about primaries, let's remember which was the first party to ever introduce uh, primaries to the Israeli political system, which I know you, you've been researching, so you know the answer. Who were they? Who were they? Who were they? I know the answer, but before you say it, I want to point out that a lot of people misstate this fact, which is why it's so important that we at Election Overdose are here to set the record straight. I can't tell you how many times I see, even in academic publications, that the first parties to hold elections were Labour and then Likud in the early 90s. Angel, why is that wrong? Well, first of all, because the party that first did it, did it in 1977, 
a couple of years later, that party did not even exist anymore. And therefore, it's sort of been forgotten. Second of all, because it was really a very big event. When the two established parties, Likud and Labour, started doing their primaries, the first party-wide primary was for Labour leadership in 92, when Yitzhak Rabin was, was uh, I'd say, re-elected because but he wasn't the leader, and he beat him on Paris, who'd been leader for a long time. The Rabin comeback... Uh, of 92, 15 years after he had lost the leadership, he came back through a, a party-wide primary. A lot of people said that if there hadn't been a primary in Labour, Shimon Peres would have gone on and been elected again through the uh, through the Central Committee, as he had been, because he had a lot more control of the party uh, apparatus, whereas Rabin was much more widely popular amongst the rank-and-file membership. So that's why people remember those events of the early 90s as being the first primary then. They could came along with all the colourful uh, events that we still see today. But the truth is that back in 1977, there was one party that already did then a, a party-wide primary, and that was Dash. Uh, little remembered, though some would say, harbinger of what, much of what was to come in Israeli elections. Do you remember Dash, Dalia? I do, because I think that what we do, what we fail to appreciate sometimes is that Dash was one of the main reasons for what we call the Ma'apach, or the first major transfer of power in Israel from the ruling uh, Marach, Mapai, Labor, whatever you want to call it, to Likud in 1977. Everybody remembers the groundswell for Likud, but we forget that one of the reasons that the Marach did so badly, the alignment at the time, uh, Labor Party, was because Dash took so many of their votes away. And the reason they took so many of their votes away was because they were led by a group of people who said, you know, things are becoming not very democratic inside the labor, they're full of cronyism. They've got, you know, total control over this country. It's time to, you know, root out corruption. We want to have a pure kind of politics. And and their their decision to hold primaries was part of that. Though it has to be said that they managed to decimate labor and win 115 seats. They didn't, they, they failed at what they wanted to do, which was to become the party which could form a government themselves. They also wanted to be the party which would hold the balance of power, which they did not because they could did so well, and some of Likud's partners did, did also so well. Dash, Dash joined the coalition, but Likud did not have to have them in the coalition. They could have, would have, they could have formed a majority coalition without Dash. So Dash is an interesting kind of story of a party which did very well. People kind of remember, huh, they took away Labour's power, but they didn't do well enough. And that's one of the reasons why they very quickly dissolved, because they were not the main, they were not the party of power. They were unclear whether they wanted even to be members of Likud coalition within a year or so they're already splitting into many separate parties and thereby becoming one of the one of the first pop-up parties in Israel and we're so familiar with that pop-up concept now because this happens all the time which leads to the question are primaries a good idea because if the first party to do primaries lasted such a short period of time and the people remember perhaps the fact that they were they were a player in the Mahapach in the 1977 upheaval election but they didn't remain on the scene perhaps primaries aren't that great an idea. And the party which did succeed in what Dash tried to do, which is Yair Lapid they succeeded in becoming a centrist party, which could hold the, the, the balance of power. And as they have now, its leader became prime minister. They didn't use primaries at all. So perhaps primaries ain't such a good idea. I would say it's probably not a causal relationship. It certainly is a correlation, but, you know, that holding primaries doesn't necessarily mean you do well. Not holding primaries doesn't mean you do badly. We can see that. But I don't think that it's a causal factor. I, I think the problem with Dash is, like, with so many Israeli parties up until Yair Lapid, 
that when you take a centrist position and the centrist position says at by, by 1977, there was already an understanding that parties were becoming more uh, uh, about ideology with relation to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and what to do with the occupied territories. And Daesh came along saying, no, we care about democratic governance. And that's something that has never really, uh, you know, managed to galvanize people in this country for very long, maybe for a moment, but it doesn't ever seem to be really sustainable as people line up along those heavy ideological poles. Yeah, I think there's all those things playing into it, but it's true. Dash was broke the mold, did the primaries, and then disappeared from our lives. And we're about to disappear from your lives for the weekend. Which is very sad. But... We want to thank our editor and producer, Shani Aviram, and Amir Factor. And we've overdosed on legislators today in primary discussions on primary colors, primary elections. But we'll be overdosing on something else tomorrow because it's always full of surprises here in Israel. And I'm signing off from Haaretz Studios in Tel Aviv. Anshul Pfeffer and I will see you next week. Keep the faith. Listen to us. Subscribe. And we'll see you soon.